on WHMP. Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And joining us for his usual monthly time with us is the District Attorney for the Northwestern District, which encompasses Franklin and Hampshire counties, Dave Sullivan. Dave Sullivan, thank you so much for being with us today and every month. We really appreciate it. I think we should start with something that, well, pains me and I think probably pains you too. Top of the fold on the Republican newspaper today, big media news, Gordon Lightfoot dies at 84. Gordon Lightfoot, the Canadian folk singer whose gift for melodic songwriting made him one of the most popular recording artists in the 1970s, died Monday night in Toronto. Gordon Lightfoot, an important person, an important artist in your life? I really like Gordon. I mean, I like folk music, and he was certainly a balladeer. I mean, he, many of his songs really talked about uh, the past and about lessons learned, um, you know, from uh, you know, different crises. So I like Gordon. I think he uh, really uh, sang to Americans as well as Canadians. He did, and he was part of that era of folk singers, Joan, Joan Baez and Judy Collins, and just extraordinary artists whose music lives on. We did not think, of course, we didn't think at all, but we didn't think in the 1960s and 70s that the music that we were listening to then, we'd still be listening to 50 years later. It really is quite a gift, and it was quite an era for music that, that lives on. And... Were you a, were you a, a big folk person? Yeah, I, I liked all those artists. I mean, you know, Bob Dylan, all those ones. I always liked the fact that the, they had meaning. You know, that there were songs that really gave meaning to our culture and you know for enjoyment as well. Uh, but with Gordon Lightfoot, I mean, he um, he'll be heard for many years to come. Same with Joan Baez. I mean, these are timeless songs that they they sang. And hey, listen, you know, issues about race about, um, you know, equal rights. Uh, those issues are still present today, so the, I think the songs are relevant. Well, it is a long and, I think, worthy read in today's Republican uh, MassLive.com about Gordon Lightfoot. Of course, those obituaries will be in every media outlet today. And really, I think it's sad. We just at least remember someone who made an enormous contribution to our lives. And it always felt to me that Gordon Lightfoot and Joan Baez and Judy Collins and Bob Dylan somehow sang to me. They sang to us individually. And that's what made them so important, not to mention the brilliance of their compositions. District Attorney Dave Sullivan, big news uh, in the world of criminal justice. The Supreme Judicial Court has issued a decision that calls into question 27,000, let's do that again slowly, 27,000 convictions for driving under the influence for cases that occurred between uh, 2011, 2018, or 19. I would appreciate your giving us your impression of what and your analysis of what the Supreme Judicial Court decided. And then the second question I'm going to ask, no surprise here, is how does that affect the Northwestern District, Hampshire, and Franklin counties? D.A. Sullivan? Well, I think the, the simplified is that there was an office of alcohol testing uh, that was managed by the state police of Massachusetts, and they had a responsibility to certify, to make sure that these 
uh, breathalyzer machines were calibrated correctly and that the reading that was produced was valid. And uh, they did not use the negatives. They, they didn't report, I think it was about 489 or something like that, tests that showed that the machine was not valid. But they didn't produce that for uh, attorneys in discovery, which, as, as we know, you know, uh, defense attorneys need the full story to represent their clients. So the Supreme Court made a good decision. They decided that this egregious misconduct uh, results in, A, not being able to use any of those tests that were used, uh, obviously getting convictions in those 27,000 cases. Uh, but now they're requiring uh, defendants to go back and file motions for a new trial. So that's um, kind of a summary of where the case went. And so now we've got uh, a number of cases in our district uh, when we got the uh, a decision, I think it was 2019, uh, on another uh, case, Anaisis, um, we decided that th- there would be no use of any breathalyzer in any case. So we don't have any cases, uh, you know, from 2019 on. But going back, um, uh, we've assented to any uh, motions for new trial uh, where a breathalyzer was used. So uh, I think we're in good stead, although I, I have to say, that the defendants uh, in this particular class action are much different than the ones that are in the Farrakh case or the Dukin case because the Supreme Court in those cases decided the egregious misconduct should result in a dismissal. So now, uh, you know, defendants and their attorneys, if they still have one, um, will need to go back and file a motion for new trial, which I don't think is fair. Okay, so much to unpack with what you just told us. Let's let's go back to what you indicated at the beginning of your comments, District Attorney Dave Sullivan, and that is that the test results, those results that showed that the breathalyzers were unreliable uh, and or hadn't been tested and or failed to show their accuracy, actually proved they were inaccurate, were not turned over to defense attorneys. As I understand the decision in the protocol, they weren't turned over to defense attorneys because the state police refused, intentionally, did not turn over those results to the district attorneys. It's the district attorney's responsibility to give that information to defense counsel or defendants, and the district attorneys across the state couldn't do that because the state police, in effect, lied to the DA, lied by omission. And let me just, that's right, Bill, let me just supplement it. There were 11 worksheets. It used to be they were kept in logs. Now they're kept in what's called worksheets, which I'm not really clear about. But uh, those 400 and whatever it is, I think it was 430, but whatever it is, um, District Attorney David Sullivan, that was a lot more tests that were wrongfully uh, done because the ALCO test 9510 was never calibrated, as you said. But we're really t- that's how the number gets up so high. They intentionally hid it, as Bill said, from your offices, from district attorney's Absol- offices, absolutely. and from the court. Yeah, we need full disclosure from uh, law enforcement and from testing facilities, uh, which in this case the testing facility was under the supervision of the state police. We need that full information so we can disclose it uh, to the de- defendant and his or her attorney. I mean, it is... Uh, it was egregious. I agree. Could you spend one more minute on that for us, Dave Sullivan? Yep. How is it that the state police could hide this year after year after year after year from the district attorney's 
uh, not to be too blunt about it, but you are on the same side. I can't fully understand it. I, I think it's a misguided. I think people at that lab didn't feel it was all that important, which we take a different view. I mean, if there's a failure, you need to know about that failure so you can correct it. And more so, that that test should never be introduced in the court of law. I mean, we put our reputation on the line every time we walk into court, and we want to know the full story. And, and in this case, the full story wasn't present because they just felt, hey, these these things will just disregard, we'll test it again. But you can't disregard the truth. The truth is that the 400-plus uh, you know, uh, analysis of these things just came up you know, not valid. What about the confidence in the criminal justice system that between the two drug lab cases and this case is we're talking about tens and tens of thousands of wrongful convictions. That, that really is enough to shake anybody's confidence in our criminal justice system. How about yours as sort of the guardian of the prosecutorial function in that system? Everybody has uh, a lack of confidence. In, in these particular cases because they violate the, the precept that uh, we're an open and fair judicial system and a, a criminal process should be fair and open. And in this case, uh, these results were hidden and they have no right to hide them because, and I think part of it is that sometimes people don't really understand what's behind the test or maybe what they should be asking for. But, you know, attorney Bernard, who, uh, you know, uh, handled these cases for the class action, knew what questions to ask, and through his really due diligence and ferreting things out, was able to uh, un- uncloak this uh, uh, scandal, which I consider a scandal. It's, uh, you know, when, when you have, uh, you know, people that represent the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, uh, they need to be held accountable. I'd like to know this distinction. I'd like to delve into this distinction between these cases and the drug lab cases. In the drug lab cases, there was a system set up to notify all of the defendants who had been wrongfully convicted, whether by trial or by plea. Here, I don't think there is a specific order from the Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts, at least not yet, to tell everyone who has been victimized by the state police that they are entitled to challenge that conviction, that plea, that guilty finding by a judge or jury. Do you see some way, and are there any plans to notify all those individuals who were convicted between 2011 and 2018? And I hasten to add, District Attorney Sullivan, that I understand your office has not used breathalyzers now for a number of years. Congratulations on making that decision. But there still were, what, seven, eight years of convictions for OUIs where these machines and their results were utilized? What about those people? Well, I think that the Supreme Court should uh, review that, and I wouldn't have any opposition to that order that would uh, allow for um, you know, past uh, defendants to be notified. Um, in many of our district court cases, uh, just because of our uh, the great number of cases, uh, many of them are destroyed uh, after uh, four years in our office. Um, but the Corker Court's uh, in those district courts, and maybe there's some superior court ones if it uh, involved serious injury or, or death, um, they would have all that information to, to go for on that docket, you know, what the current address was. And what we did as uh, district attorneys in notifying is we, we, 
were had that responsibility is to do a really good uh, search by hiring a firm that figures out where the current addresses are. So um, it, it's not you know, somebody got convicted in 2011. The chances of them still being at that residence from 2011 is probably pretty slim. You know, I mean, maybe 25 percent. So I think you have to really dig in. But you no, know, I don't have a, any opposition to an order that would allow us to to go back and have those have the court produce those addresses. D.A. David Sullivan, why shouldn't the state police, out of their budget, be required to to find a way to notify all those people? Because it is court records on who got convicted. Why shouldn't they have to pay for this, uh, given that it was under their watch? Well, it would be better than our office having to pay for their mistakes. Um, you know, somebody's got to come up with the money, and uh, usually uh, the district attorney usually ends up footing the bill. But uh, if the court wanted to order the state police to um it's it's the people's money eventually it's going to come out of the public's coffers because um they didn't decide uh for these convictions whether they should get their money back uh for fees or you know fines and things like that so that's another decision that will have to be made down the road based on what you're saying it seems to me uh, i don't mean to uh add words but i well, I think I will. I think you're saying there's more litigation still to come on this because these issues, including uh, you can't get the time you spent in jail back, but you certainly could get your money back for fees and fines and all of those things that go into an OUI conviction. Uh, you think there's more to be decided and will be decided by the Supreme Judicial Court? Oh, absolutely. I, I think that uh, that was a basic uh, decision in the sense that egregious misconduct, okay, you, you couldn't have used those breathalyzers from 2011 to 2018, but I think that uh, the plaintiffs uh, on that side uh, that are representing the uh, the convicted, uh, you know, operating the under-defendants, they're going to probably file another suit or try to uh, get a clarification from the Supreme Court as to, hey, what do we do with these people when it comes to you know, the, the fines and, and, and convictions and uh, exonerating them, you know, because, I mean, if you have an OUI conviction, if you had a second stop and you got convicted, there's serious consequences, even more so for third and fourth uh, offenders. And, and I'm not saying, I mean, you know, we we prove OUI through a, 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 a number of different ways other than the breathalyzer, and that's what we've been doing for, you know, the last, you know, four or five years. So um, in that sense, um, you know, there's convictions that are solid, but only the ones that didn't use the breathalyzer. We are speaking with District Attorney David Sullivan, District Attorney for Franklin and Hampshire Counties. We're going to take a quick break. More with the District Attorney right after this. Just like a paperback novel, the kind the drugstore sells. When you reach the part where the heartaches come, the hero You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. 
Where Were These Books Banned? Gender Queer by Maya Kobabe. All Boys Aren't Blue by George M. Johnson. Flamer by Mike Corrado. Not at Broadside, Broadside Bookshop, Northampton's long-standing independent bookstore on Main Street in Northampton since 1974. As Northampton's Pride Parade goes by Broadside this Saturday, Broadside will indeed feel enormous pride in being part of this community. Keep in mind, you can order any book on the Broadside website and have it delivered to your door or pick it up at the store. It's lawn care season, so remember, what you put on your lawn and garden can wash with the next rainstorm into our rivers and lakes. Here's two tips for better lawn care. One, test your soil. Find out what your lawn needs before spending money on product. UMass Extension offers testing. Two, leave grass clippings where they fall. When mowing, this will put nutrients back into your lawn naturally. Healthy lawns, healthy waters. Brought to you by the Connecticut River Stormwater Committee. Learn more. Click Lawn and Yard Care at thinkblueconnecticutriver.org. Celebrate Mother's Day at Gateway City Arts in Holyoke with wonderful food, beautiful music, and support a great local cause. Enjoy a classic European brunch at Judd's Restaurant from 10 to 2. Then stay for a free performance of chamber music from 2 to 4. Meg Kelsey Wright and Sue Curian of Mosaic bring you selections from Gabrielle Foray, Astor Piazzolla, and many more. It's open to the public with donations to benefit Safe Passages work to prevent domestic violence. Make your reservations now for a unique Mother's Day brunch at Gateway City arts.com you could be one word away from one thousand dollars it's a grand in the hand on whmp listen each weekday for the thousand dollar keyword at around 8 15 12 15 and 4 15 when you hear the keyword just go to whmp.com and enter it for a shot at one thousand dollars you have until midnight to enter the keyword of the day it's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Complete rules and details on WHMP.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP. We continue our conversation with Northwestern District District Attorney Dave Sullivan. The Northwestern District is Hampshire and Franklin Counties. DA, I would like to continue, and Buzz and I would like to continue this conversation with you about this new ruling by the Supreme Judicial Court calling into question some 27,000 convictions for OUI. Uh, And what I'd like to know is whether or not uh, your position, which is people who come forward and say, I want a new trial, will in general be endorsed. They won't be opposed by the district attorney in your in those district attorneys in the courts under your jurisdiction is that a statewide kind of position for district attorneys or are you something of an outlier on this no i think everybody's in agreement with uh, the sjc agreement and they realize that it's egregious we had a meeting of da's uh the day that that decision came out everybody was in agreement that uh, the sjc made the right call on it uh what they're going to do in the future I, I really don't know I know what we'll do, and that is continue to, you know, uphold uh, you know, the rule of law. They made a decision. We're going to live with it, and we're going to make sure that uh, people uh, who want to get a new trial get one. Yeah, if they know about the decision and if they can be notified. And sure, these decisions, I mean, these decisions, these convictions going back 10, 12 years, as you point out, people have moved, probably are not at the same address. Uh, their lawyers may or may not still be practicing uh, there's a data that, or 
that that may be non-existent at this point, it does seem to me that there is a real effort that has to be made to notify people that, hey, you have a conviction that in all probability can be vacated, but it's up to you to make a motion for a new trial, which uh, most people look at and say, I don't have a clue how to do that. And I'm wondering if... And I think that's the key behind it, is that uh, the SJC should provide an order as to who's responsible for giving that notice, whether it's us, the state police, whoever, um, to make sure that people know that they have rights. Now, I'm not sure if the 27,000 was all breathalyzers or whether it was all um, uh, OUIs. I'm, I'm not sure. I didn't get a clarification on that, whether that all, was... All breathalyzer uh, machines, yeah. Yeah, all breathalyzers, yeah. So... Yeah, and they were all between uh, 2011, June 1st of 2011, and April 18th of, uh, I think, 2019. Yeah. So we have a lot of cases. A lot of cases. 27,000 individuals. Just extraordinary. It still boggles my mind that the state police could hide this and lie by omission to district attorneys day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, and not think a thing about it. I just find it absolutely appalling. Listen, district attorney, I like. I know you were involved in Law Day's uh, ceremonies in the past week, May 1st being Law Day, we talked about on the show. There were a couple of important, I think, speeches and presentations given both in Northampton and in Greenfield. You want to tell us about those? Yeah, uh, in Franklin County, um uh, we had a law day. About 100 students came to the courthouse. Uh, they had tours of the courthouse, and they sat through proceedings uh, in district court. And um, I think it was very worthwhile for the students. I know there was two high schools. It was Turner's Falls High School and also uh, Four Rivers uh, uh, High School. And uh, it was just a good experience for them. And then they were led by different attorneys, some from our office, some from the defense bar, uh, civil attorneys, and that they got to ask questions as they went through, and they, they, they really enjoyed it. They did that for about an hour. And then uh, we had a panel, uh, which was uh, U.S. Magistrate Judge Catherine Robertson. Uh, she's a judge down in uh, Springfield, and Franklin County Sheriff uh, Christopher Donlin. And their theme was separation of powers, how important it is to have equal branches of government. Um, I asked a question of all the students. How many have had civics? Now, these are, you know, sophomores. Uh, juniors, maybe some seniors, and out of 100 students, I'd say maybe 15 raised their hand. So I kind of commented that we're not going to have a democracy too long if people don't know what their rights are and and how our government's made because they're our future leaders. And so I know there was a really good conversation, and the students got to ask questions of uh, Sheriff Donlin and and Judge Robertson, which is very, very uh, productive because they brought out different questions that they have and, and I think it was a, a really good day for, uh, for justice in Franklin County because our young people are learning about our system. Um, in Northampton, it hasn't happened yet. Um, the theme uh, for Northampton is voting rights are human rights. And so we're going to have Professor Carrie Baker. Um, she's Smith College uh, Program for the Study of Women and Gender. And also Professor Jesse Rhodes from UMass. He's a professor of political science. And he concentrates in Civil Rights Act, uh, race, and how uh, you know people can be marginalized in the in the voting system. So, so that's going to be coming up Thursday at the old courthouse at 9:30, uh, and everybody's welcome to go. 
So we're having a slightly delayed celebration of uh, yeah. May, of Law Day, which is May 1st, because uh, we were busy in Hampshire County uh, dancing around the Maypole on May 1st, so we couldn't get to Law Day. That's what we do in Northampton. <laughs> <laughs> Hampshire is very accommodating. They didn't want to interfere with Franklin's day. Franklin got the leadoff. It's like the leadoff hitter. They got to go first, you know, and now, now Franklin. Also, well, who is going to be presenting is the Pioneer Valley Performing Arts Public School and uh, they usually put on a little mock trial. So uh, I'm looking. Uh, I, I'm not going to be there because I'm, I'm traveling today, and, and I'll be away for that. But it, they're always outstanding presentations by the uh, uh, Pioneer Valley Performing Arts. So it's a, a nice bonus for everybody. Well, District Attorney Dave Sullivan, we want to thank you for being with us. We know you're traveling. You found a nice, quiet place for the most part to be with us. We really appreciate your time every month, and thank you for making that particular effort today. Thanks for having me, and have a great day. Thanks, David. We'll be right back. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Voters overwhelmingly supported a new elementary school to replace Wildwood and Fort River schools in Amherst. 82% of voters endorsed the project by a 3,272 to 731 vote margin. Moving forward, a proposition to and a half debt exclusion for the funding. The Elementary School Building Committee will now move forward on the project, meeting twice a week for the next two months to finalize details. The Massachusetts School Building Authority will be covering as much as $40.5 million with a construction grant, and Town Council has approved using $5 million in reserves. The new school will be the town's first net-zero emissions building and will cost an estimated $97.5 million. Construction is expected to be completed by fall 2026. The large black bear that made its way up a tree in downtown Northampton has been safely relocated. While Mayor Gina Louise Sherris said they would not disclose exactly where the bear was released, she said the stressful situation was resolved with the help of state environmental police and local Northampton police officers. The bear had gone up the tree next to the courthouse and was in the tree for a while, and there was a lot of people that had gathered. So that's a very stressful situation for a bear, as well as any humans involved. And a 40-year-old Connecticut woman is facing charges after TSA officers found a loaded firearm inside a carry-on bag at Bradley International Airport Monday afternoon. The 9mm firearm had a chambered round and two ammo clips with a total of 20 rounds. Showers and drizzle continue today. Cool with a high of 54 to 58. Scattered showers drizzle tonight. Evening temperatures in the upper 40s. Overnight low of 38 to 44. Mostly cloudy. A few sprinkles tomorrow. A high of 52 to 56. Mainly dry and a sun cloud mix on Friday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP. This news update in Spanish is brought to you by our friends at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rochevega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. Los republicanos de la Cámara de Representantes aprobaron por poco el miércoles una legislación radical que elevaría el techo legal de la deuda del gobierno en 1.5 billones de dólares a cambio de fuertes restricciones de gastos, una victoria táctica para el presidente Kevin McCarthy, mientras desafía al presidente Joe Biden a negociar y evitar un incumplimiento federal catastrófico este verano. 
Biden ha amenazado con vetar el paquete republicano que de todos modos casi no tiene posibilidades de ser aprobado por el Senado demócrata y hasta ahora el presidente se ha negado a negociar el techo de la deuda que según insiste la Casa Blanca debe levantarse sin condiciones para garantizar que Estados Unidos pague sus deudas. Los republicanos tienen una mayoría de cinco escaños en la Cámara y se enfrentaron a varias ausencias esta semana, lo que dejó a McCarthy casi sin votos de sobra. Al final, el orador perdió cuatro votos republicanos negativos y todos los demócratas se opusieron. En otras informaciones, la Corte Suprema habla con una sola voz en respuesta a las críticas recientes a las prácticas éticas de los jueces. No hay necesidad de arreglar lo que no está roto. La respuesta de los jueces sorprendió a algunos críticos y expertos en ética como sordos en un momento de mayor atención sobre los viajes de los jueces y las transacciones comerciales privadas. Eso ocurre en el contexto de una caída histórica en la aprobación pública según lo medido por las encuestas de opinión. Los seis conservadores y los tres liberales de la Corte parecen estar unidos en este principio particular. Sobre ética, establecerán sus propias reglas y policía entre ellos mismos. Yo soy Johan Rashivega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Hollywood Media a través de WHMP. This news update in Spanish has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. The Love Show is coming. I can't wait. Let's turn to Bob Silman, who's the founder and director at the Young at Heart Course. Tell us about The Love Show, please. Well, The Love Show's all about love. But not Don't go out on a limb here, Bobby. Come on, come on. Try, 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 try to stay with the try to stay with the script. Uh, you know, okay. I wanted, I wanted to fool people right away. <laughs> no, it's uh, you know it's it's all aspects of love. You know, love doesn't always go great. So there's some sourful. You're moments. just giving away so many secrets. How did you, how do you come to these insights? Love is not always great. Quote. Yeah, I learned okay. that from the members of the chorus. I've been around a long time. Not my own experience. <laughs> Okay, so tell us what the Love Show is and why it is and where it is. Give us well, all those it's details. At the Academy of Music Theater on on Sunday, um, May seventh at three p.m. and um, it's going to be a real range of music for the chorus. I mean, uh, we are looking at some old standards that people will know, but we're also looking at a lot of current music that the chorus has never really delved into. You know, like Rihanna and. Uh, Miley Cyrus and Rina Sawayama and uh, Lizzo. So, you know. Yeah, but what's love got to do with it? Yeah, it's got everything to do with it. And, um, you know, it's going to be cool. Uh, you'll see the chorus in many, many versions of uh, what love can look like. Some of the standards that the Young at Heart Chorus will be performing? Oh, I'm not going to say, but, uh, you know, I'm not, <laughs> not going to reveal them, but, you know, You'll know them, you know, you know them like by the people who sung them, like Nancy Sinatra or, you know. The Beatles? The Beatles. Well, the, well not the Beatles, but John Lennon. Oh, okay. John Lennon. And did you put together this entire list or did the chorus put it together? Well, everybody put it together. Julia had a lot to do with it, Julia Van Eyken, who's sitting here. And um, some of the band, but mostly us, I think. I think mostly us. We tried to get some opinions from the chorus, but 
their their ideas on good music are not always our ideas on good music. We don't always share those. Well, I I yeah. should tell. <laughs> That's putting it right. <laughs> uh, yeah, we got to be honest about it. I mean, these are people who are the average age is eighty six, and their the idea, average age is eighty six. That's right. So wow. obviously, the kind of music that they grew up with and that they really like is going to be really different from at least my taste in music. And I think part of what makes the Young at Heart so interesting is having old people play music that they didn't grow up with and that they're not used to singing. And we had them actually, we had them singing a number of songs that have some swear words in them. Okay, time. don't don't sing those for us today, please. Those. I know I'm in America. I can't swear anywhere, but we will. We will on stage on oh, Sunday, man. as I, a matter I of fact. I heard a lot of swearing at the Academy of Music recently. Uh, oh. I saw the Gary Goldman show, and man, he was phenomenal. So great comedian. Uh, so let me ask you this: uh, I'd like Julie to take a second, tell us what your role in putting this production is together, and Bob, what you've done. Now that you're, oh well, how about how to put this, old enough almost to be in your course. You, you know, I'm sort of, um, I, I'm getting closer to being in the chorus. You know, so I'm, I'm, <laughs> really? In this, in Are this, you going to do that? In this show, I'm, 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 I feel like I'm one of them. I mean, I'm one of them. I am, <laughs> you know, I'm becoming one of them. And uh, Julia takes a lot more of the directing role, you know, directing the chorus in this show. So, Julie, what's it been like to direct this show? Has it been different from other shows? I mean, I've only done a couple of shows so far, and I kind of fell into this randomly last year when Bob couldn't really run rehearsals for a while, and he asked me, can you please do this? And I said, He said, uh, please. He no, said, no please. Swearing. No swearing. <laughs> and I think I did swear in response to that, but I, I said, I can try. That's really all I can do, but I can't promise I'll be very good at it. I have no background whatsoever in music, so I was just kind of improvising on the fly and it seems to be pretty fine pretty it, i'm enjoying it let's just put it that way how many members of the chorus now average age 86 uh, well there's probably 28 members but there'll be 22 or 23 on who stage. will be performing so. this sunday by the way tickets available where bob or julie uh at aomtheater.com that's an re theater.com and also um they can call the Academy box office at 413-9032, extension 105. I don't know if I get that reversed. Yeah, well, that's... <laughs> <laughs> no, it looks, and I, should, I, should, I should point out, okay, by the nature of disclosure, Bob Silman and I shared a house years ago. Bob was the person who came, who came to me early on when he was thinking about uh, creating what became the Young at Heart course, and he said to me, listen... Uh, I'm thinking about starting a group of 70-year-olds, they were younger then, uh, who are going to sing rock and roll. And I gave Bob very sage advice, which was stick with your day job. That, that is never going to work. <laughs> okay. I, I'm just wondering about the perversity of your imagination. that You could even think of that. It's so great that you thought of that. Buzz, Bob was trying to make a living in something called the Self-Righteous Brothers. That was his group. <laughs> this was not a big leap. That, that was the perverse group. <laughs> no, I had great, I had great uh, really fun grandparents and uh, great uncles and aunts. And, uh, you know, they were from the World War I generation. And uh, when we started this group, we had a guy who was in the Battle of the Somme in World War One, Wow. You know, so um, I just th found that generation so interesting. 
And, did uh, your grandparents know? I mean, it's kind of an homage to your grandparents. Did they know that you did this? Uh, no, they were all gone by then. Mm. But uh, they would have loved it, actually. You know, they, they had a really funny sense of humor. So uh, You know, I have about 15 acres where I live, and we have a maple stand, a maple trees. The average age is not 86 years of the, even those maple trees. It's pretty extraordinary. Yeah. Let me share a couple sentences from the article in today's Daily Hampshire Gazette under the headline, These Singers Know Something About Love. Young at Heart Chorus gets ready to present its spring concert, The Love Show, by Steve Ferrer. Dateline, Northampton, they're back and they're in love. The Young at Heart Chorus, which celebrated its 40th anniversary last November at a sold-out concert at the Academy of Music, will return to the Academy this Sunday with a new program dubbed The Love Show. Later on in the article, a big article, great photographs, it says this, Rosemary Kane, a Young at Heart member from Greenfield, writes that the show will explore love, quote, in all its expressions. I will delve into that <laughs> to a degree in just a second. <laughs> we have enough songs, poems, and novels with happy endings. We crave to endorse the almost universal belief that all we need is love. Even the biggest cynics would agree we can't do very well with added that quote by, from Rosie Kane, who went on to say this, with the average age of 86, Kane notes many of the young at heart chorus are experts on the love subject, but also no doubt on the heartbreak, loss, love's lost, and with a bit of luck, love rekindled. The aforementioned Rosie Kane is with us in the studio with her harp. She is one of the most beautiful people in the universe ever. She's one of the most talented, and as a member of the young at heart chorus, she is inspiring of herself with her music and as a singer and a musician. Rosie Kane is with us with your harp in the studio today. Could you give us a sample, play a little bit for us? Sure, but I just want to tell you, Bill, that I've changed my will. <laughs> <laughs> Last will and testament, Bill Newman. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> Bob, you... <laughs> oh, Bill, Bob. Yeah, there's, a, there's a Bill and a Bob. <laughs> Thank you. 
Name that tune, Bill. Rosie, what were you playing? That's, uh, it's called, actually, it's called Mania de Carnavale. And it's from a movie. How could I have missed that? (laughs) (laughs) It's not Irish, as you might have (laughs) understood from the opening few uh, notes. Um, It's from a movie, a 1954 movie called Black Orpheus. And it opens. It's the tune that opens the show. Am I giving too much away? No, no, no. No? Okay. So, Bob, as Rosie began to play her harp, we have a very large instrument here in the studio with Rosie. Uh, we had another musician from your performance this Sunday. This is Chris Haynes. Chris. Playing the accordion. Yes, sir. That was playing the accordion for Young at Heart since 19... throwing a banjo here and have a complete uh, train wreck. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that may or may not have been totally going over the air. <laughs> but I really... How, how long have you been with the Young at Heart course? I've played with the chorus for off and on for about um, 26 years. I, I had a, a stretch where I couldn't work with them, but they kind of talked me back into coming, coming back again. So I've been with them now for this last patch for about five years or so, I think. Yeah, a good long time. Rosie, how long have you been with the Young at Heart Chorus? Three years. I think I have my three-year anniversary, just about this date, actually, in May 2020. Yeah. And why did you want to join? Well, you know, I have a long history with Bob. He was actually Uh-oh. my <laughs> pre- <laughs> about this. It's uh, not a love show. No, it's not a love show. So he was my almost 50-year-old son's preschool teacher. So don't be counting up those decades too fast. But it's a long time. And, uh, and of course, how can you not admire the Young at Heart Chorus? And, I, of course, I was far too young then to join. <laughs> and then I'm still one of the youngest. And so how about that, to be one of the youngest at 78 doing anything? You know, it, so that draws me back to how, rehearsals every day. How about that? You play the harp. How long have you played the harp for? I've played the harp for over 20 years. I started in my 50s. It was a post-career jump into a new instrument. And I've been around harp so a lot, all my life, and uh, so I went to a school called Terman Fecken, Fecken Terman, in County Louth, in Ireland. <laughs> That's where the school was. <laughs> yes, but it's only Feck. <laughs> so Terman Fecken <coughs> is a little village in County Louth where uh, the daughter-in-law of William Butler Yeats started a harp school and really was re- responsible for the revival of harp playing in Ireland. So I went there, and here I am. Well, this may be a dumb question, but in for a dime, in for a dollar. You took up the harp when you were in your 50s? I did. What inspired that? Hmm. And we're, we're not talking about a mouth harp. We're not, ta- we're not talking about that, that little instrument that Bob Silman plays, actually, yes. is expert. It's, you, you're, 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 you're a terrifically accomplished musician yourself, Bob Silman. Um, but this harp, this is, like, how to put this, a real harp. Um, what what brought you to that in your 50s, Rosie Kane? Um, I was around harps pretty much all my life as a performer. I was in the Shannon Castle Singers, and that was a group of um, singers that started in Irish cultural tourism in medieval castles. Colleen's dressed in velvet dresses with harps. And I didn't make that jump into the harp then. Uh, I That was the accompanying instrument. And so later on, um, I became part of a trio called the Burren Flora, and one of the Baron Flora started to play, and uh, she led me to the old Feckin Terman, Terman Feckin. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> <laughs> 
And what did you do in this trio? Did you sing? Yes, yes. I was a harmonizer and a singer, and I was generally the gabber on stage. And I... I'm not shocked Cut to hear mask. that. I'm really not shocked to hear that. But I would love to know this. How long have you been in Western Massachusetts? And Since 1972. 51, 50, now going on whatever it is, 50, over 50 years. And what brought you here? I was in that trio, the Burr and Flora. Oh, and that's and the reason for being here? Yeah, we were recruited by Tommy Makem, who was then a famous Irish singer. And we did a series of club dates, and um, here we are. Want to tell us about Tommy Makem, Bob Silman? It is a different Tommy Macon, right? It's a different Tommy from Macon. The, from the uh, Clancy Brothers. From the Clancy Brothers. This, yep. this is not our Tom Mankin. Oh, oh. This yeah. is somebody who's a famous Irish. Yeah, uh, yeah and that's Tom Mankin, and this was Macon. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to straighten all of this out, and we'll be right, right back with more from Young at Heart Chorus right after this. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Are you or someone you care about struggling with mental health or substance use? The Behavioral Health Helpline is here for you. Call 833-773-2445 and we'll work with you to find the help you need. Free, open 24-7 and available in over 200 languages. No insurance needed. 833-773-2445. A service of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts operated by the Massachusetts Behavioral Health Partnership. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, the Pioneer Valley's newspaper covering Holyoke to Deerfield and Belchertown to the Hilltowns, was awarded New England Newspaper of the Year for their local news coverage. Home delivered six days a week and online 24-7. Try their digital-only subscription options and stay connected with your community wherever you are. Pick up a copy on newsstands, subscribe, or visit gazettenet.com. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, covering the Pioneer Valley since 1786. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Local farms are welcoming spring to the co-op. Asparagus popping up and ready to eat in bunches. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats and sausage, everything to kick off grilling season. In the co-op cheese department, welcome the maple season with maple-washed Willoughby, a delicious local cheese washed with Vermont maple liqueur. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. WHMP is looking for organizations that regularly distribute information about employment opportunities to job applicants or have job applicants to refer. If your organization would like to receive notification of job vacancies at our station, please notify us at Careers, WHMP Radio, 15 Hampton Avenue, Northampton, Massachusetts, 01060, phone number 413-586-7400, or email jobs at whmp.com. Saga Communications is an equal opportunity employer and encourages minorities and females to apply. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our coverage of the upcoming Young at Heart course show, The Love Show at the Academy of Music, this Sunday. What time, Bob Silman? 3 p.m. And tickets are available? At aomtheaterre.com or calling 413-584-9032, extension 105 Tuesday through Friday, 3 to 6 p.m. Or you can go to the Academy Music box office and buy tickets there, I assume, when they're open. That's and right. And we can do this online, too? 
right? We, we buy, yes. buy the tickets online. Yeah, aomtheater.com is how you buy them online. Great. Okay, thank you very much, Bob Silman. We're also with us in the studio. We have Julie Van Eiken and Rosie Kane and Chris Hayes from the Young at Heart Chorus. Bob, you said, is there time? There's always time somehow for, for uh, just this amazing artist and musician, uh, Rosie Kane. Do you want to introduce the song that she yeah, says? Yeah, I do, she'll sing because for when we first... Uh, met Rosie. It was during the um, pandemic. So for at least a year and a half, Rosie never met the people in person that uh, she was playing with. But one of the songs that we got her to play right off the bat was a song from her uh, country people, uh, the Pogues. And it's a great song called Dirty Old Town. And um, I think uh, she does an amazing version of it. Rosie, sing to me. Oh, sing to us. Sing <laughs> to us. Whatever Bob and, uh, says, whatever Bob wants, the will, Buzz and Bill Bob gets. We're expecting to hear you on the chorus of this, okay? my love by the factory wall of the old canal mm-hmm. dream to dream by the old canal I kissed my guy by the factory wall in that, that dirty, dirty old, old town, town that, that dirty, dirty old town. town clouds are skipping by the moon Cats are prowling On their beat Jumps a guy From the streets at night In that dirty old town That dirty old town I heard a siren In the night I saw a train set the night on fire I smell the spring on the salty air in that dirty old town dirty old town I'm gonna make a great big axe Shining steel Tempered in the fire I cut you down Like an old dead tree In that dirty old town That dirty old town I met my love By the old canal Dreamed a dream by that old canal. I kissed my guy by the factory wall. I think that's where it was. In that dirty old town, that dirty old town. 
in that dirty old town. That dirty old town. Okay, Rosie, you're in my will. <laughs> <laughs> Rosie Kane on harp and the vocalist Chris Hayes on accordion. Bob Silman is backup singer. Oh, you're going to ease your way into this chorus, I can see. We thank you all and Julie Van Eichen for being with us today and for doing this preview of the Love Show at the Academy of Music this Sunday. What time, Bob? 3 p.m. I can't wait to see it. You guys are just amazing. Thank and you. Rosie, Thank you, for you are really a beautiful person. And Chris, you're pretty good too. <laughs> <laughs> you can fool some of the people some of the time. <laughs> Thank you all so very much. Thanks Thank you for, very much. Thank you for this show. We'll Thank see you, Bill. Sunday. Thank you, Bob. Thank, Thank you, Julia. Thank, Thank you, Chris. Thank you. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. I am Marco, and I am always been full of life, full of energy, and always on the go. At the age of 21, I was diagnosed with kidney disease. My life was saved by an organ donor. Receiving a life-saving organ put my life back into play, and I was able to move forward and make my dreams come true. Anyone can sign up to be an organ donor, whether you're 16 or 96. Be a hero. Be an organ donor. Register today. Register at mass.gov slash organ donor. Sponsored by New England Donor Services. What if there were a way to go into cancer surgery or treatment feeling more comfortable and optimistic? Recorded meditations can help. Doctors have said that it makes their job simpler. Nurses tell us their patients may go home sooner and need less pain medication. Cancer Connection creates custom meditations for people affected by cancer, and you don't even have to come in. Go to cancer-connection.org to learn more or donate today. Cancer Connection relies on local donations to make its services free. WHMP Northampton. WHMP. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And welcome to Talk the Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. I'm Bill Newman. Uh, Bill, you know, uh, we keep hearing about Sudan, this country in Northeast Africa. Um, it's got a population of about 45 million, and a conflict has broken out, which we know too little about. Uh, my understanding is the fighting between two rival generals, uh, one who leads the Sudanese military and the other who leads what's called the Rapid Support Forces, which is a paramilitary group. And caught in the middle are these tens of millions of civilians, who uh, many of whom uh, have demonstrated their support for a democratic government, um, and the death count keeps rising. Um, Bill, I want to thank you. You know Eric Reeves, who's currently a, a fellow at the Rift Valley Institute, uh, which is in Kenya, um, and uh, he's here on the show. And I just want to thank you, Eric, for joining us. You are truly an expert on this, on Sudan and the conflict, and thank you. Hey, we welcome back to the show Eric Reeves, Sudan researcher and analyst, Northampton resident. Thank you for joining us again today. Eric, <clears throat> we should know, and we're going to get into this later on in our conversation, is a really important figure in having established this medical care for women in, in, in Sudan. It's quite extraordinary what this project has accomplished. It's also quite horrifying what these women have been through. Eric Reeves, I think that many of our listeners actually would have some difficulty placing Sudan on a map. And then, for many, many reasons, would have way more difficulty explaining 
why there is a war going on in Sudan now and who is fighting whom and why. Can you help us out, please? Let's talk about the two men who are engineering the fighting in Khartoum, which rages now amidst a fifth ceasefire. Let me start with um, Hamdan Dagalo, better known as Hameti. He was, as a young man, a camel thief. His family grew up in Chad and moved to South Sudan, or South Darfur. Um, he became in 2013, because of his exploits as a Janjaweed fighter during the gen early years of the Darfur genocide. In 2013, he was appointed by former President Omar al-Bashir to head the Rapid Support Forces, often called the new Janjaweed, to complete the genocide in Darfur. Hameti is a clever man. He's got lots of low cunning and his army, really a paramilitary force, has grown to perhaps 100,000 men, actually larger than the regular army. He has moved to consolidate political support. Uh, he's tried to polish his image internationally, and he has got more blood on his hands than any other man in Sudan. On one side, he is the combatant. On the other, is a traditional army general, uh, Fatah al-Baran, who uh, has command of a, a great deal of heavy weaponry, which has been deployed highly indiscriminately in searching out the rapid support forces in Khartoum. It's important to know- Khartoum, we should note, is the capital. Pardon me? That is the capital. Yeah, uh, Khartoum is a capital city, almost the size of New York City and fighting in all parts of this uh, urban area has been utterly horrific and is presently creating what may soon be the world's largest humanitarian crisis. Eric Reeves, is there any ideological difference or we just have two strongmen, I think that's probably the appropriate term, who have followers personally with a lot of weapons who are able to cause massive destruction I understand that part. What I don't understand is, is there anything that, that separates these two ideologically, philosophically, or otherwise? Not really. Uh, I can't think of a person in Sudanese politics more expedient than uh, Hamasi. At the same time, General Al-Baran has no principles. The big question is whether the Islamists, uh, the holdover loyalists from the al-Bashir regime, will uh, take sides, in which case it would have an ideological inflection, but one that is uh, unappealing to key regional actors, namely Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates. The latter is the source of much of Hamati's wealth and provides him with a great deal of support. Including the guns? Including the guns. They come through Libya, uh, Commander Haftar in southeastern Libya has been a conduit for weapons and resupply to the rapid support forces in Khartoum. In fact, resupply is going to decide, I think, the conflict in Khartoum, uh, whether or not the urban warfare is 
enormously consumptive of both ammunition and ordnance, and it's not clear that the rapid support forces uh, can do more than um, hole up and resist by using civilians as human shields. I have a really remedial question. There are these two military leaders fighting it out with their supporters for control of the capital city of Sudan and therefore of Sudan. I would like to know, do either of them have a position in the government? And if so, what is the government doing? Well, there is no government other than um, these two men. Um, They came to power by virtue of a what was called a constitutional declaration in August 2019, which was supposed to be a pathway to civilian governance. As it got close to the time when the civilians were able to, would be able to take over what was called the Sovereign Council, the two men together, Hameti and Al-Burhan, mounted a military coup, October 2021. And since that time, they had ruled together, but tensions grew over a number of issues and on uh, April 15th broke out into extremely heavy fighting extremely quickly. How do you tell the different fighting factions apart? Are they wearing uniforms? Are they identifiable? Or is this all guerrilla warfare in the city? The uh, Sudan Armed Forces have uniforms and wear them. The rapid support forces sometimes sell their uniforms, sometimes wear civilian clothes over them. Um, They are despised by most um, Sudanese for a variety of reasons. They're viewed as interlopers. They're from the hinterlands. They speak with a funny Arabic uh, accent. Uh, Hameti has no popular support, although he's trying to cultivate it uh, by various means, but neither does General Al-Burhan. So you have two deeply unpopular men in a country that is yearning for democratic transformation, and they are the obstacles. And yet the international community keeps treating them as the key interlocutors. I'd like to know, I'd like to know a lot, but I'd really like to know this. Does the United States other than taking out our personnel from the embassy, does the United States have a position on what should happen in Sudan? And are we doing anything to implement that position? As far as I can make out, the U.S. government effort to date has been to engineer a truce that will last. We've already seen five truces and five truce violations. I see no reason to believe that the recently announced negotiations uh, under the auspices of South Sudan will take place in meaningful fashion. They may take place, but not in meaningful fashion. Uh, Grimly, I must predict that this will be a fight to the finish and it will be extraordinarily destructive. It could provoke regional conflict. Uh, Sudan does border seven different countries with very, very different interests. Uh, It could be the site of a proxy war involving Egypt, Saudi Arabia, the Emirates and others. Uh, The potential for disaster here, massive disaster, a massive humanitarian 
crisis are are far too great. And it doesn't seem to me that U.S. policy, uh, which has floundered for years, is on the right track. You just used the phrase a massive humanitarian. Uh, what was the word? Crisis. 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 Why does this have the potential to become a massive humanitarian crisis? Well, Sudan, in some ways, is in a perpetual humanitarian crisis. I know that's an oxymoron, but right now, even before the fighting began, one third of Sudan's 45 million people were in need of humanitarian assistance. Humanitarian assistance has ended in the sense that no supplies, no food, uh, no relief columns are getting into the country with one small exception. Food is going to be a critical commodity, particularly the further away from the capital you get. So that in Darfur, I know from intelligence I get from the ground, food is already desperately uh, needed. We have extremely high levels of malnutrition. Children under five are already dying from malnutrition. And I see no way in which food convoys can make their way to Darfur anytime soon. Eric Reeves, um, as an expert, as a fellow at the Rift Valley Institute in Kenya, when I look at the map, and I'm admittedly not very familiar with this area in North Africa, we all focused our attention from time to time on Egypt, that's incredibly important, and on Libya. Um, this is, I mean, the Sudan is a spit away from Saudi Arabia. It shares a huge northern border with Egypt, and it shares an uh, eastern border on the Red Sea that's not very far from Saudi Arabia. This is potentially a really explosive region, and yet we don't know much about it. Why do you think that it's not a region that we in the United States know much about? It's not a glamorous story. It's a complicated story. It is indeed extremely important if we take into account the regional issues as well as those internal to Sudan. But when I was asked when Darfur was once a cause celeb among uh, human rights types, um, I was often asked to give lectures and say, why is, why is Darfur uh, so invisible? And I said, and this applies to much of the area we're talking about, they're poor, they're black, they're Muslim, and they sit over no natural resources of great value to the West. They are geopolitically inconsequential. And far too much of that is true of, uh, of the rest of Sudan, of Eritrea, of Ethiopia, uh, uh, of Egypt. Uh, but uh, it, it's, these are not stories like the rape trial of uh, Donald Trump. Eric Reeves, you just mentioned the calamity, the genocide that happened in Darfur. Could you give us a real thumbnail sketch on, and bring us from that time to the present. You just mentioned how Darfur was and, and how Sudan itself is, is in perpetual crisis, which I think is actually an accurate description. Give us a bit of that history, if you would, please. The Darfur genocide 
we can almost date precisely to April 2003, when the rebels who were from non-Arab tribal groups, primarily the four mass elite in Zagawa, uh, attacked the air base in El Fasher in North Darfur very successfully. And we should not let me interrupt, but Darfur is part of Sudan, yes? It is, although it has long been deeply marginalized. Um, after that stunning success, Khartoum's response was to assemble various militia groups into paramilitary organization that we call the Janjaweed, uh, devils on horseback is one translation. In coordination with the regular army, they went on to destroy hundreds, if not thousands of villages, burning, pillaging, killing, raping the, the the international community lost interest in Darfur after a brief uh, moment in the sun, but the genocide never stopped. And the main perpetuator was Hameti from 2013 to the present. His rapid support forces are responsible for most of the violence we see now in Darfur. Um, we don't have from the UN any update on their April 2008 mortality estimate, which was 300,000. In 2010, I looked at all the available data and reports and concluded at the time that it was much closer to 500,000 who had died directly and indirectly from the violence that Khartoum had instigated. That figure is now probably 600,000. When we put this in the context of Rwanda, this is this is the same scale of human destruction with the same hateful racial ethnic bias, and it continues to this day. It is really we, a sobering. We, we are speaking with Eric Reeves, Northampton-based Sudan researcher and analyst member, a fellow of the Rift Institute, Rift Valley Institute. I'm sorry, Rift Valley Institute. We're going to talk about the work he is doing, helping to do on the ground in Sudan. We'll be right back more with Eric Reeves right after this. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. It's your home for the resistance. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon. Get informed and get involved. I'm Tom Hartman from the Tom Hartman Program. Intelligent talk, opinion, and debate. Join me every weekday, noon to 3, right here on WHMP. 101.5-1400-WHMP-WHMP-WHMP-WHMP-WHMP-WHMP-WHMP-WHMP-WHMP-WHMP-WHMP-WHMP-WHMP-WHMP-WHMP-WHMP-WHMP-WHMP-WHM
Our rivers belong to all of us, and each of us has a responsibility. Together, we can make a difference. Learn more about what you can do at ctriver.org. Using WIC is easier than ever. Now you can use the WIC card instead of checks for your food purchases. WIC is a free nutrition program that helps working families stretch their food budget and make healthy choices. WIC helps families learn to shop for nutritious foods and offers resources like online nutrition education and an app to make shopping easier. Visit us online at mass.gov WIC to find out if you qualify. This message is brought to you by the Massachusetts Department of Public Health's WIC Nutrition Program. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Northampton-based Sudan researcher and analyst Eric Reeves, who is a fellow at the Rift Valley Institute. We've been talking about and learning about Sudan, the conflict there that's gone on in one form or another for, I guess, decades. When did the first uh, genocide in uh, Darfur begin, Eric? Well, the genocide in Darfur is one of many wars in Sudan. The North-South civil wars, um, the second uh, beginning in um, 1983 and continuing through 2005, claimed some 2 million lives. There was a previous civil war involving South Sudan. There have been conflict with the Eastern region, with the Nuba Mountains in Kordofan in the center. but Darfur uh, is an area where conflict of that sort hadn't been seen until 2003, when genocidal violence of the most extreme sort broke out in a region where two-thirds of the population was non-Arab and only a third was Arab. It's a vast area. It's the size of Spain. Uh, and um, the nature of genocidal warfare is unspeakably ugly, and uh, the consequences have been devastating for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people. Eric Reeves, you are involved with a humanitarian effort, a medical effort called ZamZam on the ground in Sudan. I'd appreciate it if you would tell our listeners about that. I have been trying for a number of years to get uh, an international non-governmental organization to take seriously the problem of women traumatized by sexual violence. Rape was a critically important, brutal, ugly weapon of war and remains a weapon of war. And it's not just women, it's girls. Uh, many of them are, are deeply depressed, suffer from post-traumatic stress syndrome, uh, have fistula injuries of a sort requiring surgery, leaving them in agony until such surgery, and unable to interest uh, a non-governmental organization, I decided I would do it myself. And with the aid of colleagues I've developed over a quarter of a century working on Sudan, was able to set up a program in Zamzam camp in North Darfur, 400,000 people that is dedicated entirely to providing psychosocial services and surgical services to as many women and girls as possible. Unfortunately, there are far too many for us to treat in their entirety, but we have seen 4, 000, more than 4,000 girls and women receive psychosocial counseling from our 20 counselors and more than 65 surgical repairs of fistulas. 
you just said, I believe, this camp, I put that in air quotes for a moment, has some 400,000 residents. Is that right? Uh, according to the Norwegian Refugee Council, in their latest estimate, it was 450,000. It's hard to know. There is no census. The only census is one conducted by the World Food Program. They simply count people who've received um, cards uh, to enable them to receive food, but that's only a fraction of the population. So we are talking about a camp that is highly various. People who've newly arrived uh, set up in the flimsiest of tents, uh, stick tents. Uh, people who've been there a long time live in dwellings uh, made of brick. But uh, it's a camp in that it has no industry, it has no jobs, it has no uh, production capacity, it has no means of supporting itself. Uh, unemployment is uh, is far over 50%. Some people do commute into El Fasher for uh, work, but it's it's a terrible, terrible place to have ended up for people, many of whom were born there or lived there most of their lives. This is an internally displaced persons camp. Is that the correct term, IDP? That's right. We, we don't have an exact population figure for the uh, displaced in Darfur, but I would estimate closer to 2.5 million than 2 million, but in excess of 2 million people out of a, a pre-war population of 6.5 million. You talk about the impending crisis in Sudan. Are we talking about the potential for mass starvation? Yes. Uh, just today, I looked at the newest report from the what's called the Famine Early Warning System Network. And most of North Darfur is in the orange category, which means uh, crisis. Um, there are two categories above it, but only uh, one between where we are now and famine. Famine just kills and kills and kills. We are, as I said earlier, uh, we're already seeing deaths from malnutrition. Malnutrition rates among children under five are so scandalous that when the UNICEF uh, uh, survey was produced, they were afraid to release it because the government of Omar al-Bashir would take it personally that such high rates of malnutrition existed in Sudan. Can you tell us uh, how we in the United States, we here in Western Massachusetts, can do anything to be useful to try to alleviate some of the suffering? And I'd specifically like you to tell us how we may, might be supportive of ZamZam and your provision or that group's provision of psychosocial and, and surgical services to women who have been victimized by sexual violence, which, as you point out, is a weapon of war in Sudan and many other places, but certainly in Sudan. How can we do something? Because you listen, I listen to you, Eric, and I, I want to do something, but it doesn't seem like there's much to do. Help me, help well, me with that. One of the things about uh, our project, and I work with a Darfuri colleague whose family is in Zamzam. Um, one of the things our project does is provide food 
to the very most needy, uh, to families with orphans, to the disabled, to uh, the extremely elderly. So in addition to providing medicine, food, and most importantly, psychosocial counseling and uh, uh, fistula surgery, um, we, we do a lot and it, we transfer money and this is one of the big problems international organizations have by the Huala system. I won't try to explain it, but it circumvents all the banking restrictions that Khartoum has always placed on humanitarian organizations. So our project ZamZam has no overhead, is 100% efficient in getting money to people who provide aid. And you can find um, ways to help on my website, Eric Reeves Woodturner, all one word, hyphen, uh, no, Eric, what is it? Eric Reeves hyphen woodturner.com. Sorry for that. Uh, uh, Eric Reeves hyphen woodturner.com, as I was telling folks in the studio before he came on. Eric is a brilliant woodturner and he sells those those pieces of art and all of that money goes to support uh, ZamZam and provide humanitarian medical relief for people in, in, in Darfur and in the ZamZam displaced, internally displaced persons camp. How do we do that again, Eric? We want to do it more time? How, this, is uh, where, this is where we can well, give money and the money will go for food and medicine and things essential to keep people, men, women, and children, many children alive. Where do we go? Uh, either give directly, and there's there are uh, in, instructions about how to do that, or buy a wood turning. Uh, uh, I've got some 40 pieces for purchase from with big prices, small prices, but 100% of the proceeds from every sale go directly to ZamZam. And it is, at this point, the project has become uh, a powerful force within the camp. Uh, it raises morale, convinces people they've not been forgotten, uh, has assisted, as I said, some 4,000 plus girls and women with psychosocial counseling, uh, and the food and medicine goes to, and because the 20 counselors on our team have such an intimate knowledge of the camp, we know that food aid and medical aid is extremely well-targeted to the very most needy. We've been speaking with Eric Reeves, Northampton-based Sudan researcher and analyst fellow at the Rift Valley Institute. Eric, thank you for your work. Thank you for sharing what I know is horrifying news for many, but thank you for telling us that we can do something helpful. We'll be right back. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Voters overwhelmingly supported a new elementary school to replace Wildwood and Fort River schools in Amherst. 82% of voters endorsed the project by a 3,272 to 731 vote margin, moving forward a proposition 2.5 debt exclusion for the funding. 
The elementary school building committee will now move forward on the project, meeting twice a week for the next two months to finalize details. The Massachusetts School Building Authority will be covering as much as $40.5 million with a construction grant, and town council has approved using $5 million in reserves. The new school will be the town's first net-zero emissions building and will cost an estimated $97.5 million. Construction is expected to be completed by fall 2026. The large black bear that made its way up a tree in downtown Northampton has been safely relocated. While Mayor Gina Louise Shera said they would not disclose exactly where the bear was released, she said the stressful situation was resolved with the help of state environmental police and local Northampton police officers. The bear had gone up the tree next to the courthouse and was in the tree for a while, and there was a lot of people that had gathered. So that's a very stressful situation for a bear, as well as any humans involved. And a 40-year-old Connecticut woman is facing charges after TSA officers found a loaded firearm inside a carry-on bag at Bradley International Airport Monday afternoon. The 9mm firearm had a chambered round and two ammo clips with a total of 20 rounds. Showers and drizzle continue today. Cool with a high of 54 to 58. Scattered showers drizzle tonight. Evening temperatures in the upper 40s. Overnight low of 38 to 44. Mostly cloudy. A few sprinkles tomorrow. A high of 52 to 56. Mainly dry and a sun cloud mix on Friday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis. 101.5 WHMP. You could be one word away from $1,000. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Listen each weekday for the $1,000 keyword at around 815, 1215, and 415. When you hear the keyword, just go to WHMP.com and enter it for a shot at $1,000. You have until midnight to enter the keyword of the day. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Complete rules and details on WHMP.com. It's the all-new Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster, Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2. Brought to you by realtor Craig Delapena. Over 18 years experience selling valley homes within 10 blocks of rail trails near parks and other conservation areas or antique and historic houses. Contact Craig at NorthamptonRealtor.com slash innovator. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster only on WHMP. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Local farms are welcoming spring to the co-op. Asparagus popping up and ready to eat in bunches. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats and sausage, everything to kick off grilling season. In the co-op cheese department, welcome the maple season with maple-washed Willoughby, a delicious local cheese washed with Vermont maple liqueur. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Are you an immigrant worried about your future? Do you want to change your life? At Center for New Americans, you can take English classes for free. They help immigrants with jobs, licenses, healthcare, as well as immigration and citizenship. CNA helps you create a better future. Visit our website at cnam.org. Call 413 587 0084. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. I am extremely interested in our next guest and what he has to share with us. But I just want, as a background, um, my wife and a number of my close friends um, 
suffer from osteoporosis. The usual way that it works is they're osteopenic and they sort of try to take care of their bones. And then uh, my wife, who's healthy as a horse in most ways, when she falls, she breaks. Um, and I know a number of people who suffer from that. Frankly, most of my friends who suffer from osteoporosis are uh, female and in latter stages of their aging mm -hmm. process. And um, that's why I found it so interesting when I saw uh, this book, Great Bones, Taking Control of Your Osteoporosis by Keith McCormick, who is a board-certified chiropractic physician uh, here in Massachusetts and in other states, and that he's uh, been practicing since 1982. He also is a silver medalist in the 1973 Modern Pentathlon World Championships, and he is a marathon runner. He's an incredibly uh, in touch with his own body, and he's written a book that um, is about him taking care of his bones, what has happened to him in his experience with respect to his skeletal frame, and he's here to talk with, it, with us today. Thank you so much for joining us, Keith McCormick. Good morning. Thank you for having me. It is our pleasure. So, and, and maybe instead of doing that, could I go back to what Buzz was just talking sure. about for a second? Postmenopausal women, are they at more risk to have bone breaks and otherwise suffer from osteoporosis? Definitely. About 50% of women and 20% of men will get osteoporosis and actually fracture. And many of these fractures people don't even know about. And uh, it's a degenerative disease that occurs over time. And yes, at, at menopause, which is usually around 50, age 50 for women, there's about a five-year period right after menopause where their bone density really plummets. I want to get back to your new book, Great Bones, Taking Control of Your Osteoporosis. It's almost encyclopedic in the amount of information. But let's start with the follow-up on Bill's question, which what is osteoporosis? Osteoporosis is when the bone density and quality declines to such a state that a person fractures very easily. And they're called fragility fractures. And as I said before, it's uh, very, very common and it leads to a lot of morbidity, mortality, and um, uh, it can just really devastate a person when they find out that they have osteoporosis. I have many people who come into my office and they're in tears because they just, it just surprises them. They just, it says, well, I didn't, you know, I'm healthy, or at least I seem healthy, and it just came upon, and I, and I just didn't, had no idea that I was like that. Well, I was shocked when I looked at your book. I looked at your accomplishments as an athlete, and you have had such problems with your own skeletal members. I was diagnosed at age 45, and it certainly devastated me. And I, you know, as you said, I've been an athlete all my life. I seemed like I ate well all my life and did everything right. And then I came up, uh, I ended up having 12 fractures in five years. And um, so I just immersed myself in the study of osteoporosis and bone health. And uh, I've sit, written, since written two books, including this one. And uh, as you said, this is like an encyclopedia of it. It's made for, I, I wrote it for doctors and lay people. So uh, I try to bridge the gap between the two. And the reason why is because there's many doctors out there who they know a little bit about osteoporosis, but they don't know enough. And I'm trying to change the world and a little bit. And 
uh, have doctors respect the disease a little bit more and take it seriously. And I'm trying to help uh, patients, the lay pay layperson to be able to understand the disease a lot more. Is osteoporosis treatable? Definitely. And it's treatable not only through drugs, but through uh, nutrition, exercise. And it's certainly easier to prevent bone loss before you have it. But once you have bone loss, it, it is much more difficult, but certainly it is definitely treatable. Once you have bone loss, once it's gone, it's gone forever? No. Oh, good. And that is a, in, a really important point because on almost all medical uh, texts that you read, it always says, you know, it's, it's irreversible. And um, that's not true. Well, you are not a postmenopausal woman, um, <laughs> Dr. Keith McCormick. And so... Why do you think you got, I mean, I think I read that you had 12 broken bones or something like that, um, and you trace it back to osteoporosis. Was it genetic? How did you acquire osteoporosis? And how'd, no. you, and how'd you find out about it? Uh, I started breaking. I, I, I was doing a track workout one day when I was 45 years old, and I came up with a lot of hip pain and went to... You know, I tried to, you know, just rest and it never went away. So I ended up having a bone density, uh, x-rays, et cetera, et cetera. And then found out I had osteoporosis. Osteoporosis being defined as the bone loss? I mean, it's a little it, circular to me. I'm, I, well, that's, that's, a, that's really important. Uh, a bone density is, just as it says, it's assessing bone density, but it doesn't say anything about bone quality. And bone strength is a combination of bone density and bone quality. Unfortunately, the bone density uh, test that we get, the DEXA, only measures the bone density. There is another test called a trabecular bone score that helps with bone quality, but a lot of hospitals don't have that. Can you go back a second? Because what you said was just fascinating to me. You want to help educate lay people and also doctors about osteoporosis, which affects obviously millions and millions of people. I am wondering whether or not you have a sense whether primary care physicians are attuned to this, uh, whether they listen to a patient that yearly exam and say, you really need this kind of a bone density or bone quality test. What's your sense of that? Unfortunately, they are not attuned to it. And uh, many patients come into me, and they're 60 years old, and they just had their first bone density exam. Bone density exams should be, you should get one when you're 45 or 50, not when you're 60. As I said before, it's a lot easier to pre prevent, so it's a lot uh, better to know earlier in your life if you have low bone density, then you can do more about it. But I think most uh, doctors out there still just think that osteoporosis should be addressed with calcium and vitamin D and, and drugs. And there's way more to it than that. And uh, that's what I go through in the book. Does calcium help? Does vitamin D help? Yes, but it's only a, a very small part of the whole problem. And there are other drugs, prescription drugs? There's, prescription, about? there's about 10 prescription drugs out there. And they all improve uh, bone density. Some of them improve bone quality, but, but probably half of them don't do anything for the bone density itself. And that's why you have to do a whole uh, 
program as far as nutrition, exercise, and sometimes medications, but medications sometimes aren't always necessary if the bone density isn't that bad. Uh, what I talk about a lot in the book is how to use what's, ca what's called therapeutic targets, and that's when you take laboratory tests and you assess a person's lab results, and, and that guides the treatment. So if for bone density, you don't get a bone density but every year or two, but you can do a lot of different laboratory tests in the meantime to change them. If a laboratory test comes back wrong or off, um, too high or too low, you can actually change those tests and then improve that person's overall health and bone density and bone quality. We want to continue our conversation with Dr. Keith McCormick, doctor of chiropractic. His new book, Great Bones, Taking Control of Your Osteoporosis, his intended audience is us. 50% of all women, 20% of all men suffer from osteoporosis. We're going to be back with Dr. McCormick right after this. Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. The Paul Parent Garden Club, every Sunday, 6 to 8 a.m. Brought to you by Winesick Nursery, locally owned and operated since 1954. Visit Mike, Amity, John, and the rest of the team at Winesick Nursery, Route 9 in Hadley, and online at winesicknursery.com. 20 years ago, we envisioned creating a brighter future for people and planet. Now, PV Squared celebrates a big milestone, two decades of designing, building, and maintaining quality solar projects for homes and businesses in our community. PV Squared is a worker-owned co-op. When you partner with us, you get a team dedicated to the success of your project, from your first meeting to servicing your system down the road. Build solar right and do business better. It's the co-op difference. Learn more at pvsquared.coop. I am Marco, and I am always been full of life, full of energy, and always on the go. At the age of 21, I was diagnosed with kidney disease. My life was saved by an organ donor. Receiving a life-saving organ put my life back into play, and I was able to move forward and make my dreams come true. Anyone can sign up to be an organ donor, whether you're 16 or 96. Be a hero. Be an organ donor. Register today. Register at mass.gov slash organ donor. Sponsored by New England Donor Services. Go out to eat, save 30%. Get a guitar or take lessons, save 30%. Pork chops, rug cleaning, hypnotherapy, save 30%. The Shop 30 store, full value gift certificates to local restaurants and merchants, plus tickets and events. Just click, print, and save 30% on the stuff you were going to buy anyway. The Shop 30 store, open right now at whmp.com. A little bit of hammering and a little bit of humoring. Today's Homeowner with Danny Lipford. Home improvement ideas and advice. Today's Homeowner with Danny Lipford. Sundays at noon, 101.5, 1400, WHMP. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP. 
And we are back with Dr. Keith McCormick. We're talking about his book, his new book, Great Bones, Taking Control of Your Osteoporosis. Dr. McCormick is a chiropractic physician whose office is between Amherst and Belchertown. Is that right? Yes, it's, it's actually in Belchertown. Yeah. It's actually in Belchertown, near the border of mm-hmm. the two. And um, you treat people with osteoporosis. Is that your specialty? Is that what you focus on? That is, yes. And um, it looks like you've been doing that for quite a long time. I, I have a question, a follow-up from before the break. Uh, you distinguished um, bone quality from bone density, and I must admit it goes right over my head. What's the difference between bone quality and bone density? Density is how much uh, t- uh, tissue and mineral is in the bone. The quality of bone is how those crystals, the, the bone crystals are put together, how the trabecula, that's the inside of the bone, the little struts and uh, bars that, just like the inside of an airplane wing, makes it strong but light, the same, the same as in bones. You have the inside the bone is called trabecular bone. The outside of bone is called cortical bone. But that inside part of the bone the, where the trabecular are, those trabecula can be disconnected. They can uh, get so thin that they break apart and they're not connected. So uh, it just makes the quality of that bone poor. And many drugs, the bisphosphonates that are out there, do not reconnect those trabecula. So we're adding bone tissue, or bone density, bone mineral, to that poor foundation, that, those poor trabecula, but it doesn't really do anything to improve their strength. So I'm about to ask a question, which as I, I'm biting my tongue because it might confirm listeners' views, and in fact, I'm an idiot, but let me ask the moronic question anyway of you, which is, we hear about bones that are found from Lucy, the alleged missing link, or you know, from tens of thousands of years ago, humanoids, bones, become fossilized, they survive. Are we getting more fragile as time goes on? Not necessarily. What is happening is we're living a lot longer, and I don't think we're really designed to live to be 80, 90 years old. And um, so we're finding out more and more that as we live longer, we start getting more and more fractures because we just naturally lose a little bit of bone. The problem is some people lose bone at a much higher rate, and they're the people that fracture. I'm really, I want to follow up on what Bill was talking about before, which is what is the takeaway? If, if, and this book is encyclopedic. There's so much. It's so well-resourced. Uh, I think that the last 20 pages or so are just so many different uh, resources you relied on to write this book that are footnoted within the book. It, it's, this is a course, this book, to learn. But what is the real takeaway? What should we be doing in order to preserve our skeletal health? Yes, there's 700 pages in this book. There's 1,200 references. I, uh, everything that I talk about in there, I reference because I want people to know that this is real science and uh, I think the takeaway in the book is that you can use laboratory tests to not only assess what kind of bone loss you have, whether it's high, uh, high rate bone loss, low bone turnover. Uh, there's lots of different disorders that can increase bone loss, such as 
non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, diabetes, parathyroid disease, um, and it's endless. Uh, osteoporosis, cardiovascular disease, depression, Alzheimer's, they're all related because they have a background in chronic systemic inflammation. inflammation. So if you assess uh, a lot of different laboratory tests, you can not only determine whether where the bone loss is coming from in many cases, but you can take early action and start preventing this bone loss. But you can only do that if you do the right laboratory tests. So the book talks about probably you know, 100 different laboratory tests that are available, and the, uh, your medical doctor, your chiropractor, whoever you, you go to can do laboratory tests, assess where you are as far as your health and, and as it relates to bone health and other, other aspects of your health, and then attack that by improving uh, you know, how your bone turnover um, goes. Just in case we've scared the bejesus out of people this morning, this afternoon, depending on when you're listening, I would like to know whether or not, for example, I go or a listener goes to their doctor for their annual physical, and the doctors you have this conversation, the doctor orders a bone scan, bone density test. Bone density, okay. yes. Okay. Um, and it comes back normal uh, for your age. Uh, are we pretty much good to go for the rest of our lives at that point? That is so important to understand. Yes, there's not very many disorders out there where you can do one little test and then be happy and say, okay, well, I've, I've just you know, eliminated one chronic disease. I mean, you can't do that with many things, but that's, why, that's one of the reasons why it's so important to get a bone density early in life. It's nice to try to rule out one chronic disease, but yeah, if you're Bone how, how early in life? I recommend 45 to 50. Okay. Uh, and if your bone density comes back pretty good, in all likelihood, you're good to go. That's really encouraging. Nice question, Bill. Yeah, I lucked into it, but th that's comforting. Thank you. <laughs> yes. Doctor, scan me, please. <laughs> oh, everybody should ask their, their doctor to order them a bone density. They're great tests. They're, they're, they're non-invasive. Covered there's, by insurance? They're covered by insurance. There's minimal radiation. It takes 10, ten minutes to have one. In yeah. a hospital? Hospital, mostly hospitals. Uh, usually uh, small practice uh, facilities do not have them, but mostly in hospitals, yes. We have been talking with uh, a chiropractic physician, Keith McCormick. He's an expert, and he writes about his expertise in a book called Great Bones, Taking Control of Your Osteoporosis. You can find this book in your independent bookstore. Amazon. Or Amazon. And um, he has an office here in Belchertown. Thank you so much for joining us, doctor. Thank you for having me. Learned a lot. Everybody gets scanned. Thank you for joining us today on Talk to Talk. Like Dr. McCormick, be sure you walk your walk. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. So this is Massachusetts way of saying, we think it's an important program. We think it's important enough to continue for students and their families. And we're going to put the money up front to make sure it continues so that if the federal government does not renew it, 
Massachusetts will still have universal school meals. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. Grow Food Northampton helps you make the local food system better. This is Michael Skillicorn, Director of Programs. You can join us by shopping at Northampton Tuesday Market, getting a plot at our community garden in Florence, buying a farm share at Crimson and Clover or Sawmill Herb Farm. You can volunteer with us in our giving garden or participate in our neighborhood markets that bring the local food movement to underserved communities in Northampton. Get involved and support our work at GrowFoodNorthampton.com. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls. WHMP.com, a Northampton radio group station. It's 11.30.